This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. It's Friday, July 14th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca and they got the Long Island serial killer. An architect mm-hmm, from Massapequa Park, Long Island, apparently was killing people, dumping them in Gilgo Beach, the Gilgo Beach area. Massapequa, not far from where I grew up. I grew up in Baldwin. And if you've ever traveled the Babylon branch of the Long Island Railroad, you know it goes Baldwin, Freeport, Merrick, Belmore, Wantaw, Seaford, Massapequa, Massapequa Park, Amityville, Copake, Lindenhurst, and Babylon, transfer to Jamaica for Britain. I'm going to stop there. But it's close. It's also close to East Meadow, where Joel Rifkin, 80 serial killer, lived and where his victims died. Joel Rifkin's nickname, Joel the Ripper. No, it wasn't. No one ever called him that. I wonder how many serial killers get into the game because they never got a good nickname in high school. Mm, none, probably none. But what if there were even one? You know, the most prolific serial killer in American history. Do you? This just goes to show notoriety doesn't go by number of victims. It's a guy named Samuel Little, whose nickname was, I don't even want to say it, it's the Stroke and Choke Killer, and uh, for all the reasons that you don't want to hear. But yeah, names are important, which brings me to a totally unrelated blurb I read in the New York Times the other day. About 6% of school-age children have a developmental coordination disorder, which can persist into childhood. Joel Zwicker, a researcher and occupational therapist at the University of British Columbia, said the disorder may be why many people develop a longstanding dislike of sports and exercise. This disorder, also known as clumsy child syndrome. What? The disorder is known as clumsy child syndrome? That's not a syndrome. That's just a description of the clumsy child. If you want to make it a syndrome, you got to give it a name. So I looked it up. What is clumsy child syndrome? What else can we call it? And it turned out it's called developmental coordination disorder. That is the more official name of the syndrome. The even more official name than that is dyspraxia. I like that. I mean, I don't like kids with a disorder, especially if they're in my way or at the gym. I probably was one. Whoopsie-doo. Very bad at tying my shoes when I was growing up there in Baldwin, which as you know, abuts Freeport, Merrick, Belmore, Wanta, Seaford, Massapequa, Massapequa Park. I said Seaford the wrong way. If you live on Long Island, it's Seaford. Seaford, Massapequa, Massapequa Park, Amityville, Lindenhurst, Babylon. So yes, I I was wondering why they didn't just say dyspraxia. About 6% of school-age kids have not a developmental coordination disorder, have developmental coordination disorder, also known as dyspraxia. And I suspect, and this is 
this is a bad place some of the media have taken us. I suspect it's so as to lessen the stigma. But the lesson of lessening the stigma is that we learn less, we understand less. Clumsy child syndrome, that's not actually the name or a name. It's supposed supposed to make these children feel bad. I think what makes them feel bad is these headfirst dives they're taking onto concrete. Developmental Coordination Disorder, DCD. A little stigmatizing if you're mean, but hopefully not. Dyspraxia, if you want to speak Latin, and clumsy child syndrome, if you want to just have nice rounded edges, which is advisable if your child is very clumsy. So kudos to Long Island Police. You got your man, apparently, the architect for Massapequa Park. He tripped up. Why? Could be dyspraxia. On the show today, resilience in the face of thousand-year floods. Why not 10,000 years? Is there any limitation to the time frame we could assign to these floods? Very, a lot of water. We'll, we'll give you that. But first, I Got a Monster is the new documentary out in select theaters today and also on Amazon Prime. Tells the story behind the Gun Trace Task Force in Baltimore, which is called America's Most Corrupt Police Unit. We're joined by director Kevin Abrams and Baltimore State Attorney Ivan Bates, who is at the center, as a lawyer in private practice, at the center of bringing this corrupt task force to justice. Kevin Abrams and Ivan Bates up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I got a monster. Those are the words uttered by a deeply corrupt Baltimore police officer named Wayne Jenkins. If you heard of this name, it's because HBO did a miniseries based on his real story. Now there is a documentary based on a book by journalists Baynard Woods and Brandon Soderberg. The director of this documentary, Kevin Abrams, joins me, as does pretty much the main subject, the propulsive force, who is now Baltimore County State Attorney Ivan Bates. Gentlemen, welcome to The Gist. Howdy. Hey, how are you doing? I'm well. I very much enjoyed the documentary. And I'll start with this. I also, I don't know if you have want to tell me any feelings that you have about the David Simon miniseries, but I loved it. But I also take the point, and I, I heard this raised, that the miniseries followed the cops. And if they were, they were antiheroes, and it was clear that they were corrupt. The documentary really follows the victims. So Kevin, was that one of the reasons you wanted to make it? Without a doubt, when we first got the project brought to us from Baynard and Brandon, the local reporters that have been tracking these cases for a while, they presented to us the sensational elements of the story. So you hear about this, you think Serpico, you think classic police corruption, all these crazy things come to your mind, but it's basically what we've seen before. And as we began to dig into the production and fly to Baltimore and begin pre-interviewing people and meeting with people, it became really apparent that the truth that needed to be told was the story from the victims, not what we heard through the news and not what we heard through the sensational elements of that story. So in doing that, 
we began sitting down and realizing that that was the most valid way to approach the store. It's actually how we eventually met Ivan because he was representing a lot of them and he opened up a bunch of doors and in a lot of ways gave us the, you know, the stamp of approval because for all intents and purposes, we're interlopers coming from Los Angeles to tell a story and he made them feel comfortable and, and, and really created a wonderful bridge to, to get them into the film. Ivan, when did you first come across this character, Wayne Jenkins? Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) I knew Wayne in the early 2000s. (laughs) I was a defense attorney and, you know, I'd see Wayne with cases here, cases there. And so, you know, there were two parts of Wayne Jenkins. There was the Wayne Jenkins who was with Gladstone, Keith Gladstone, who was his supervisor in his early days and his mentor. I knew them in terms of some of the the corruption that you saw. It was just a smaller scale. And then you see Wayne basically go through the ranks. You see him get to be named sergeant. Then he's sergeant. Then he has his own crew. And then uh, a former state's attorney, Greg Bernstein, and there's a prosecutor named Molly Webb, basically calls him out and tries to do something under Bernstein's administration. They suspend Wayne. You kind of feel he's gone. He's dead. It's like a a bad horror movie where you think you've killed the monster. And then Greg Bernstein loses to Marilyn Mosby. And then under Marilyn Mosby, he just gains strength and does really whatever he wants. So it's two separate separate time periods I saw Wayne. Because I knew Wayne was so bad from the first interaction, once he came back the force the second time, I knew what he was going to do. It was only worse. As a defense attorney, when you saw him on a case, was it promising to you because you know there was corruption you could expose and maybe get your clients off? Or was it more the case that this guy's actually good at being corrupt? Well, you know, it's a little bit of both. You know, Wayne was really, really good. He's very good as a, as, a, as, a, as a cop. He knew the law really well. He knew how to testify very well, extremely charismatic. Those traits, you know, are very troubling to defense attorneys because you have a cop you know is lying. However, you know, because I almost studied Wayne, so eventually the second go around with Wayne, I would go into the jail and I would look for cases that had his name on it. And I would tell the individuals, look, I'll take your case half price. By that time, I was a big enough criminal defense attorney. When you say, hey, I want your case half price, these guys were very excited about that. They would hire me because I by that time, I understood Wayne's pattern. I understood Wayne's thinking. I had 33 cases with Wayne, you know, so I understood what Wayne was doing. I'd watched him from the early days to now, uh, to back then. And so I was, uh, I wouldn't say I was excited, but I felt that every single case was an opportunity to really find that big case to sit down and show the corruption of Wayne. Oh, so that's what you wanted to do. You weren't just doing it for business reasons. You were doing it for social reasons. Oh, 1000%. Once Wayne came back the second time, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. We, we can't have this. You know, I think by that time, I was also, you know, you had the Freddie Gray experience, you know, with that case. I represented Sergeant Leisha White, an officer. So I learned a lot about policing, police techniques. I learned a lot about what the police can and can't do, the general orders. That really set me up to understand how Wayne really thought. And when I had that, I just felt that nobody was going to pay attention to Wayne. No one cared about Wayne. He could do what he wanted to. So, yes, from that standpoint, it was part of the social. You know, my job as a criminal defense attorney is to protect my client's rights. But Wayne was just, he was causing havoc everywhere he went. It, it was, that was just really bad. Kevin, your documentary does this in many, many cases, in many, many forms. But give me uh, an exemplar of the kind of uh, corruption we're talking about. Maybe even an outlier in terms of maybe the most corrupt or brazen thing that he did that you document. 
I mean, to me, the, the, the story that sums up Wayne Jenkins to a T is what happened during the Freddie Gray riots. And what basically happened was there were some police officers stuck behind the riot area. They were in a lot of trouble. So he ended up commandeering a van, drove through the chaos, rescued the officers, brings them out. He eventually gets a citation and a medal for bravery for what he did during this time. Unbeknownst to people, he goes back the next day and he robs the looters of drugs that they are stealing from local pharmacies like CVS and stuff like that, takes those drugs, goes to his partner, and then resells them on the street for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, if that doesn't describe the Jekyll and Hyde of this character, you know, I don't know what else could convince you. <laughs> the actual brazing madness of somebody who could do that and who can do that within a 24-hour period. And it was just a perfect example of who he was. As Ivan pointed out, he was really great at recognizing systemic issues. So he knew within this situation what was going on and he saw an opportunity and he's like, listen, God, there's all these looters going on. I'm going to take advantage of this too, not just go out and police. I'm going to go back and find ways to make some money and, and do what I do on the side. One of the experts in your documentary says the irony is he got a bronze star. And that struck me because actually it wasn't an irony. What he did was heroic. And if it had stopped there, I think like a lot of his policing, it would have been at least what his bosses and the citizens wanted and maybe even heroic, but it didn't stop there. And my question is, how much of that was, oh, not just a character flaw, was he a cop who wanted to do good but then saw opportunity, or was he a cop who used whatever public actions of being a good cop as a cover just to enrich himself and the other guys on his force? I mean, that that's a great question. We always... You know, my dream, and I still would love to find time to sit down and ask him that. We never had the opportunity to interview him, so I can only sort of project based on some of the conversations we have. It seems like both. It seems like start with good intentions, and then it turned into something a lot more dangerous and a lot more self-serving. And the main thing that everybody said was, and, and you can see this if you track a bit of his character throughout the years, is that he loved the juice. He loved getting into action. He was an MMA fighter. He was in the military. He was known for being, you know, a high charger. He liked being on the street. He liked the hustle of that action. So I think there was always the component that, that led him to the inevitable outcome, which is where it unfortunately went to the dark side. And all those things that he would have usually tapped into to be a really good cop, I think he further exploited because he loved the rush and the adrenaline of, of eventually becoming a criminal. He was known for listening to like crazy hip hop when he was driving through the city. He was known for having a huge affection for Training Day and all these movies that sort of represent those other elements of the dark side of the persona he eventually became. So I think with him, it's unfortunate uh, uh, an example of what happens, I think, systemically within situations like this, with the departments that do have these elements of corruptions that are pre-established. And I think it, it led him to a much darker place than probably he, he initially thought he could get to. Ivan, were his bosses in the police department, even in civilian leadership, did they, to the extent they knew about what he was doing, and they had to know some, I mean, he was doing publicized bus where he would put the, uh, the guns and the money on the table and say to the citizens, look what I did for you. But do you think his bosses said, all right, you gotta, you gotta, uh, break some eggs to make an omelet where we wouldn't be shocked if there was like some low level of corruption, or do you think that 
They were turning a total blind eye. And even if they didn't literally know he was stealing $100,000 from a safe, they absolutely should have known it. Well, yeah, I think uh, basically, I think you have to understand some of the culture of that particular force. A lot of these guys may have known each other, grew up together, dated each other's sisters, cousins, daughters. So there was just a culture coming into Baltimore City Police Department. They had everybody's back. Then you look at the communities they were policing. Some of them weren't necessarily concerned in any way, shape, form or fashion because the majority of the community were African-American. So they didn't care what they did to them. And then also what you also to me understand within the policing, it's almost sort of like, OK, I'm, I'm a strong guy. I, I can do what I want to. I'm flexing my power. And you know what? You're going to listen to me. And I think when you look at the, the mentality and training day that Denzel Washington's character had, without a doubt, that's what you see with Wayne. You know, i.e. they're woof, woof, and I'm, you know, he's a woof, and these are sheep, and, you know, sheep's going to go ahead and listen to the woof. He had that mentality. But Wayne also was a good guy as a family man. So you do see, like, that he did believe in the family. He did believe in being a family man. But you also see him, you know, some of the, the things that he's doing out there and running the streets, all the things he's doing running the streets. But he's going to come home and make sure his wife is taken care of, his family's taken care of. He's seen the drug dealers make money hand over fist. And he's working overtime, you know, getting a, a check. Those are things he felt he was entitled to. And I think being that entitled, i.e., I do what I want to. And yes, the department clearly knew because some of his supervisors to this day, I believe, look, they had him the first go around and they turned a blind eye. They let him walk, you know, the IED issues and they gave him a whole nother shot. So, of course, they knew what was going on. They promoted him because it gave them the opportunity to say, look at what we're doing in the community. In addition to trying to combat crime, he was a one-man crime spree. But (laughs) did he make at all a dent on the problems that he was tasked with preventing or policing? But for the fact that he was shaking down, not even drug dealers, but sometimes honest citizens, was he the kind of cop that if you take away the corruption, a police department would want? I mean, I think in some extent the the thing that we discovered and you know ivan you can talk about this now because you probably have a a lot more transparency to some of these elements when we came into it we had no idea the data-driven elements of policing the notion of counting arrests counting people getting put away counting gun crimes counting murders all these different types of stuff so he was effective I think without a doubt, in the gamification of those elements, he posted proper numbers, he supported the notion of policing being active and doing a good job based on whatever the criteria for the numeric information they were using to to track effectiveness. Now, within that is the gray area and the significance of, of what we try to do with the film and with the significance of what happens systemically within Baltimore, which is that if you don't have oversight of these people as they're going about doing their business, the ability to hide behind the numbers is in, is incredibly generous. So it's really difficult to separate the two. I think if you look numerically, he, he did, but also one of the things that Ivan Post pointed out in the film is most of the people that he arrested, they either didn't get convicted or it eventually never went to trial because he never showed up for the cases to try to sit there and testify against the people he did. So it's really difficult to to categorically say that there was success because the success came on a very specific piece of a data point, but it would never track through the whole conversation. 
So if you're a cop doing this and you're not showing up to make sure that the person that you're arresting is going to jail or getting time served or whatever it ends up being that justifies the arrest, it becomes irrelevant as to whether he's a good cop or a bad cop because the policing isn't happening from a, a legitimate place to begin with. So I think it, in study, yeah, great, get the arrest, get the numbers that is useful for some people as they combat or put together agendas. But I don't think there's ever a way to really make things that linear, unfortunately, in this conversation. Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to say is the part that people aren't seeing is, all right, there's a drug deal. You steal his drugs and you steal his money. and You don't lock him up. The street's going to believe that he stole from the main drug dealer. And therefore, now all of a sudden you're going to have murders. You know, there's a former client of mine who was stopped by Wayne Right, he, he creates chaos under him yes. as a tactic yeah. of what he does. And so the streets have rules. And so one of them, unfortunately, um, Greg Harding, you know, the police get him, they take us drugs, and they never arrest him. And then next thing you know, he's murdered, you know, a few months later. And so, you know, when you look at that, you know, when you're, you're stealing the people, individuals' drugs, you're stealing their money, and you're not locking them up. So at least if you you stole from them, and I'm not saying you steal, that's a terrible thing in general. But then, you know, at least then that person can like, hey, I was locked up and I was arrested for this. But the problem with Wayne, he doesn't want you saying that you stole his drugs. At the end of the day, he totally erased the credibility of the criminal justice system for everybody. Black people already feel the criminal justice system doesn't see them as unfair. And now, without a doubt, there's no doubt in anyone's mind what the criminal justice system was doing when you have a corrupt cop. Mm. So he is also, however, an outlier. I mean, he's inspired books, couple of books, couple of movies. People pay attention to him. He's not typical. If he was typical, we wouldn't pay attention. But to what extent is the problem of Wayne Jenkins an outlier? You know, like, is it like Jerry Sandusky and the problem of the NCAA? Is it like George Santos and the problem with Congress? Or is it more that there are elements to what he did that are at the heart of what is the problem with policing in America? And Ivan, I'll have you take this first since this is one of the things you do on a daily basis. Well, you know, I think there are elements of him that's part of the problems that we see with policing because people don't trust the criminal justice system. People don't trust the criminal justice system because they think the police are liars. They think police are corrupt. And so you have really good officers who are out there every day fighting the fight and doing, keeping us, keeping this community safe. But they're already struggling to try to regain that trust. But in terms of one of the reasons I think we're so in, uh, caught up in it is because this would be a Hollywood script. But for it actually being true, this would be a Hollywood script. But for also remember, the defense attorneys, we were the ones that were screaming up and down, yelling, Wayne Jenkins, Wayne Jenkins, Wayne Jenkins. It just happened to be that the feds were looking at the other corrupt cops based on things. And they didn't realize the worst cop that they had was Wayne Jenkins. And that was the cop they're going to bring into the fold. And so it's interesting because when you see it, you can't believe it. Then when you look at Baltimore, you know, Baltimore is a gritty city. Baltimore is a city that has had issues of police. We've had Freddie Gray. We've had so many issues, but we're a fighting town, a blue collar town. And so when you look to see that this resonates in so many cities in terms of having the, the cops, and the way they did things, and now what's going on, the proper way to do things and how they were caught and bringing the feds in, it's a, it's a movie that you wouldn't believe it if it wasn't true. Yeah, and it also must be destabilizing to have the uh, watchers who are supposed to watch these people, like your predecessor, Marilyn Mosby, she's under federal indictment, as I don't have to tell you, but I inform the audience, you know, all up 
up through the chain, there aren't too many, or the perception is there aren't too many honor, honest brokers. And I wonder if you could have, you know, order and uh, civics given that situation. Yeah, I, I don't believe you can. Look, when you have the, uh, the you know, we, we, you have the police and the police, and then you look at the state's attorney's office. Look, you know, you state, I'm, I'm a state's attorney now. And that's one of the main reasons, because people are tired, sick and tired of being sick and tired of a lot of the corruption and everything that they saw. And I think from that standpoint, when you have the police department, remember, the police, when something happens, they're the people we call. And then the state's yeah. attorneys- they Or they're not. Or, or as you know, in your city, they're increasingly not because yes. of all of this. Well, you know, yeah. and you get scared, you call 911, you know, but also, you know, it, it just breaks down the fabric of the community, the fabric of society. It breaks down the norms that so many of us believe in. And when you have corrupt police officers, you have issues involved in the state's attorney's office and the state's attorney, some of the issues that, that my predecessor is under now, it makes people not believe in the system. If we don't believe in the system, we can't work and operate as a society. I Got a Monster is available on Prime Video. It is directed by Kevin Abrams and prominently features Ivan Bates, who is currently state's attorney for Baltimore City. Gentlemen, thank you both so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. For Pesca Plus subscribers, there is a longer version of this interview. You should definitely check it out in all our offerings, our ad-free offerings, my offer to join a fantasy football team with you. You can listen or sign up or upgrade at subscribe.mikepesca.com. And now the spiel. Historic, horrific flooding in New York and now Vermont has claimed a life in each state. I was driving in the Hudson Valley in New York when the worst of it hit over the weekend, and it was bad. How bad? New York's Governor Kathy Hochul used this description. Once again, the skies opened up and wrought so much rain, nine inches of rain in this community, that they're calling this a 1,000-year event. And the flooding in Vermont was not quite epical, but it was historic. Parts of Vermont experiencing their worst flooding since 1927, worse than Hurricane Irene. But I'm going to make a point that's a little bit subtle. You might think I'm going to hit the didactic, but not wrong question of labeling. You know, how come these thousand year floods are hitting, I don't know, every other year? And the standard answer to that is that is how bad weather is getting. Yes, but the records weren't always perfect. And you know how attractive exaggeration is. But still, they are talking about in places that have hundred year floodplains and have to have accurate records. They're talking about updating what the hundred year floodplain is to match or weather realities. The New York town where the woman was killed, Highland Falls, is in Hudson Valley. And according to the New York State Mesonet Reports, uh, that's Mesonet, a portmanteau of mesoscale and network, the inches, 24-hour inches, hit 4.8 inches in Beacon, 6 inches in Somers. There were some preliminary reports of 7.5 inches in West Point. That, to my knowledge, and I looked, hasn't been confirmed. But yeah, it's all because of what the experts are saying. You've heard this. Global warming increases moisture in the air, and the amount of rain has been made more likely by the phenomenon of climate change. We have to plan accordingly. And yet, 
And here's my subtle point, which I don't want you to take as anything close to climate denial or me saying it's no big deal or has always ever been thus, because it wasn't always quite this wet and quite this flooded, but it was close. It was, in fact, more deadly because our infrastructure was more primitive. And I don't sense that it, the flooding in the past, the natural disasters, psychologically devastated us as much as they're doing now. I don't sense. I could be wrong. I have no polls from the 1950s. I do have newspaper articles from the 1950s. Why the 50s? Well, that was a time of global cooling for the first half of the century. The global surface temperature was below the 21st century average. So from 1945 to 1955, seven of those 10 years were lower than the average. Two were higher. One was the same. It wasn't, uh, the weather wasn't at pre-industrial, or the amount of carbon wasn't at pre-industrial levels. Carbon was in the air, but the weather systems wouldn't have been affected in the same way with this drenching that we're seeing. So you look at newspapers, I looked at New York State newspapers, the Kingston New York Daily, August 1955, the downpour of nearly six inches of water created flood conditions in the downtown section early yesterday as homes in several areas were damaged. They also write light. Rain fell along the New England coast after heavy downpours drenched many northeastern states. The Weather Bureau reported rainfall in 24 hours at Windsor Locks, Connecticut, amounted to 9.41 inches. In Boston, it was 7.39 inches. Here's the Syracuse Herald from 1955. They didn't have a daily. This was a different uh, rain event. They didn't have the daily statistics, but... They counted the four-day rainfall measure as 15 inches in the Catskills, and that led to that overall rain event, led to flooding. Massachusetts, one dead. Connecticut, five dead. Ten presumed dead. Rhode Island, three dead. There was an explainer of why they got so much rain then. Rain-laden tropical air was brought to the flood area by a low-pressure system. Normally, this low-pressure area would have passed after a day or two. However, its northward course was blocked this time by a high-pressure area, so it was classic low pressure, high pressure, no hint of global warming because that wasn't in play. Endicott, New York Daily Bulletin, 1954, 14 dead in flooding, a cold wave stopped, the record rainfall, which dumped up to five inches of rain. It wasn't as bad. Five inches isn't as bad as seven and a half inches, if that is accurate. I could not find more than seven inches in 24 hours for any New York state town, but it was more deadly, as you heard. And the explanations of the weather systems and the low pressure and the high pressure, it didn't fault our own efforts. Humans weren't said to be the cause. So this wouldn't lead to anger at other humans, despair at humans' ability to solve this human-caused problem. There was no sense of pointing to, say, a certain political party as contributing to the destruction of society as a whole. That, by the way, is not terribly unfair in 2023, right? One political party is better on these issues than the other, but it does lead to despair. And I know that there are many, many people who are clear-eyed experts or disaster specialists or climatologists or insurance professionals who look at the challenge and they, do, they don't despair. They say, let's roll up our drenched shirt sleeves and let's meet the challenge. We can do that. It's actually helpful to know what some of the contributing factors are because we could change things. But I also sense that many, many, many members of the lay public are just saying, this is so awful. This is so desperate, and it's only going to get worse. How can it not? Well, in fact, in terms of the capacity to deal with this, to plan, and to prevent, it is getting better. 
Just look at the death tolls at a time when, by the way, the population was lower than it is now. There's a line of thinking that goes, look, if we say, buck up, ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no rain cloud wet enough, if we have this can-do attitude, you know what? It will undercut what needs to be done. Like, this is not the time for optimism. Pessimism is a proper response. Pessimism might lead to desperation, might lead to formerly desperate measures, which is what we need, right? Because we needed to sign the Paris Peace Accord, and we didn't because people didn't take it seriously enough. And we need to get off fossil fuels, and we need to reshape our economy around extractive or away from extractive industry. So don't say we can handle this because you're minimizing the problem and contributing to it. But I think we need to do all those things and more, the fossil fuels and the extractive industries, right? And I don't think I'm minimizing the problem. I don't know. You might think so, but I'm trying not to. Maybe you're sensing a tone that is different from what you hear elsewhere and what you'd like to hear. But I'm not hopeless. I'm not despairing. We have always had floods. Does it matter that this one was an inch worse in the worst areas? Yeah, of course it matters. It matters to the flooded. It matters as far as facts. I never want to deny facts. But as far as conceptualizing the task before us, I don't know how much it matters. My message is not no big deal. We've always had deluges and floods and all manner of severe weather. My message is it's certainly a big deal, but not so very, very different from the types of challenges we've been able to get our heads and arms around. So I know I always talk about the pitfalls of over-catastrophization. What makes this a hard subject is, and I think I've used the word subtle a couple of times already, is that we're literally talking about calamities or catastrophes. But still, let us not get washed away in hopelessness. We need to wring out, dry off, and position ourselves in the American or just human tradition of persevering in the face of torrential challenges. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces the gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the chief roofing officer of Peachfish Productions. The gist is presented in collaboration with Ibsen. Ibsen? Henrik Ibsen. Heinrich Ibsen, the former Scandinavian playwright. He will take your advertising. So will Lipson's advertise cast. Upper jeeper duper, and thanks for listening. I was flooded with uncertainty there. Thank you.